This episode is sponsored by Vorbos. Check them out in the description below. If you ask the CEO of Coca-Cola, would you rather make your Coca-Cola healthy uh, and you wouldn't lose any business? What, do we, what would he say? Oh, yeah. Of course yeah. he'd say yeah, yes, yeah. but he can't because he's stuck with this product that yeah. people like and is full of sugar or full of aspartame. Mm. You know? Yeah, 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 so, yeah. And then when you start again... You go, look, I'm going to start from scratch. Like, what is important now? Like, all these artificial sweeteners, we're getting a lot of bad press. No one cared about artificial sweeteners 30 years ago. Uh, so you could just start again. And that's the cool thing. You're like, you start, you, you speak to all these people. Uh, you know, also, like, how much caffeine do you actually need? How much sugar do you actually need? So sugar was actually a big topic yeah. for me uh, actually, it was even before the sugar tax was around. Right. I mean, it was already kind of a topic, but for me, it was like, how much do you actually need um, for energy as opposed to f taste? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know I'm going a bit off topic now. No, no, please. But, but I thought that was a really interesting one because, you know, you go, because every drink in the market is got 11% sugar in it. So whether it's an orange juice, an apple juice, a Coke, a Red Bull, 11% sugar. So you almost it, don't want to know the figures. Oh no! no so I, I tried so to cut out sugar at one point. Yeah. I've I've seen so many sort of I've read studies on how bad sugar is and watched plenty yeah. of videos on it. It's it's in everything. At yeah. one point, I tried to say I'm going to quit sugar for a week, and I went to a, one I think Tesco Sainsbury's. I tried to buy like a salad pot or something. Even that had sugar in yeah. it. It's in everything. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. So you're absolutely right. It's but I'm talking about drinks in specific yeah. here. That they all have 11. percent So if the if you take the sugar out all the artificial sweeteners are brought to that level, mm -hmm. the level that we have become accustomed to. So when I thought, I found out through my the doctors and nutritionists, what you need is about 4.5% sugar because that's the same as your blood sugar levels. Right. So you don't get that spike in the crash. Yeah. So you get enough energy. So if there's nothing in there and you have sweeteners, your body thinks it's getting sugar, but it's actually not. So you get this insulin spike and blah, blah, blah. So the perfect amount for so sugar is not bad. You need sugar. So the doctor I worked with was really cool. He said, "Look, if you go on an IV drip, and they don't put a bit of sugar and salt in there, that four and a half percent, you will die." Wow. So okay. you just need sugar. Yeah, yeah. But you don't need that much. What like the monsters have in there is just for flavor, not mm. for effect. So the first thing that you did, you have this idea, and you think I might make some ginger beer. What do you do? First step. So I initially started making it as I said before in the kitchen, and that was literally googling recipe. And giving it a whirl and, and I is had, that by the way is that literally just going to sainsbury's and and buying okay the recipe on google yeah, says sorry. Oh, buy mint buy ginger like we like to drill into the practical here so that people know exactly what they can do yeah, yeah. no and, and 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 rightly so so um i bought ginger and lime at, the, at this point there was no mint in the recipe at all it was ginger lime sugar and water and i was also using uh, using brewer's yeast as well to do a bit of fermentation and then all the well Basically, I ended up peeling lots of ginger. And by the way, it's easier to peel ginger with the back of a teaspoon than it is to use a regular really? peeler. Yeah, I did not you know that. Yeah. Um, Top you, tip. You use a, you hold the, the spoon with its um, con, convex bit against your thumb and you use the tip of it and you just... Well, okay, it takes okay. ages. Okay. So you've got to be pretty determined. Anyway, I started off by peeling loads and loads of ginger yeah. and um, then kind of getting it into a pulp and letting it ferment with some water. And then I started to refine kind of my kitchen process a bit and change the way that I was sweetening the drink and change the way that um, or the amount of ginger I was putting in. Um, so it got to the point where I was quite routinely making batches of ginger beer on the weekends in my last job. And the process for that was ginger, lime. 
I think it was actually just ginger in it originally, ginger into a Nutribullet, blitz it up into a pulp, and then press it through a fine sieve with the back of a spoon. Yeah. Lots of spoons involved, apparently. Yeah. Uh, this was actually a bigger spoon. A uh, small spoon won't get you very far. Um, and that gives you this amazing fresh ginger juice. And then you can repeat the process with limes, or at the time I was actually just squeezing them like you'd normally get juice from a lime. But you can also blitz it up into a pulp and press it and juice it the same way. And then I was um, cooking that juice with uh, sugar. So you'd have like a little um, pasteurization process. I think I'd also added water before cooking it at that stage. So you were really pasteurizing the liquid and then I was putting it in these big glass jars. That was basically how I started. And then there was an element of, uh, of thought about what I wanted the product to be. So I knew I didn't want it to be alcoholic. That's when the brewer's yeast ended. Um, and I knew that I wanted to think really carefully about how I was sourcing my fresh ginger, which is where I came up with this idea for uh, supply chain out of East Africa, because I read a lot of academic research about East African ginger being not only stronger, but higher in gingerol, which is the bioactive compound in ginger that yields all the health benefits, kind of things we were speaking about earlier, great for your gut, um, good antioxidant properties, anti-nausea, uh, good for kind of perking up your energy a little bit too. I find that that's one of the benefits. Um, but on a personal level, I really like ginger for uh, the stomach one in particular. Um, I'm quite prone to stress. Like I don't eat, um, or sorry, I don't drink any coffee. Uh, so I was having a ginger shot instead of a coffee mid-afternoon in my last job. And that was helping perk me up a little bit. So I, so I, I knew that I wanted to kind of em really emphasize the ginger aspect and make it so that it would be good for uh, good for people if they were struggling with their digestion and it's only very lightly fizzy you've probably noticed it was less fizzy than a coke yeah um, yeah it was fizzy. Um, yeah. can i just ask quickly by the way when you mentioned the uh the supply chain <clears throat> out of east africa um you found the benefits for it that's why you wanted to do it yeah but for anyone listening i i mean i, I would have no idea how you even go about finding a supply chain in east yeah africa, like, great logistically. yeah and i i didn't really know either which is why i spoke to another friend of mine his older sister lives in nairobi and I kind of said, hello, we've never met before. Um, her name's Jules. She's absolutely fantastic. And we're still in touch this day and indeed sorting out my supply chain still uh, to, yeah, almost two and a half years later. But um, I, I said to her, I have this ambition to import fresh ginger from uh, East Africa. And she was so kind and on board with it and really willing to just give me loads of her time, totally free of charge, um, helped investigate export partners places to kind of source the ginger when we first um when we first used this supply chain it was it was basically just through an export partner so we found uh, a woman in kenya uh, called helen and helen helen's expertise was exporting all kinds of uh, fresh fruit and veg from kenya to uh, usually the netherlands uh, sometimes the uk um there are quite a few fresh exports that come out of Kenya, including things like flowers. Um, and lots of those go to Amsterdam too. But anyway, Helen basically had contacts for fresh ginger and was able to source from a farmer's market in central Uganda, source this fresh ginger, washed it, packed it, and then sent it here to the UK. And it was all very experimental because the quantity was, it felt large to me, but quite small in terms of international shipments. It was a thousand kilograms, so a metric ton. Um, and it had to be air freighted, so sent by air, which wasn't very environmental and quite costly. Um, how, how much are we talking cost-wise for that? So it's about it was about two pounds forty per kilogram, right? 
So oh, wow, okay. Yeah. So it's about, quite a about two and a half K. Yeah. yeah. Um, quite a significant outlay. And can you just then take us back to the start of actual yeah. Well Easy itself, kind of how you set it up and, and sort of built the initial sort of infrastructure of it? Indeed. So very familiar story probably to a lot of other people out there in the sense of pure garage startup through and through. Um, fortunately, my parents uh, are very supportive. Um, not so much, well, from a financial sense, they gave us a little bit to start, but by no means kind of massive amounts, but they gave us the space and the support to start in terms of the garage, right? How much did you um, start with on that, just on that point, Alvin, We took out, uh, I think it was 5,000 worth of loans each, so you yeah. get the startup loans. Yes. Um, my dad loaned me 2,000. Um, his boss actually loaned me another 2,000. Okay. And Josh's dad loaned him 2,000, and I think Josh had another family member that also loaned him 2,000. So we both started with, I think, 9,000 each. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of all the capital we had at the start. Um, made a mistake very early on, in the sense that we went straight to a wholesaler and took a load of inventory of ah, stuff we okay. thought could sell, okay. tied up a lot of money in stock. Um, I feel like that's probably quite a common definitely. problem with a product-based yeah, business. Definitely. It's like, great, we've got the stuff, we buy the products, and then we just sell it. Yeah, yeah well, it, there's there's... If you've got a product, it's kind of one thing, but when you've got kind of 3,000 different products that you think are going to sell and some of them don't sell, you're <laughs> right. just like, oh my God, that's like the only bit of money we had yeah. tied up in stock. So made a little bit of a mistake with that at the start, but still managed to kind of sell through and find stuff that, that kind of sold and didn't waste too much of that stock. But Also, just on that quickly, because yes. obviously given the fact that it's food, I'm guessing some of it's perishable. So it's also like if you spunge your money on that and then it's going off and you're not selling it, then it really is just money that you've burned. That would be the case, except we made the decision for Arion that it's all non-perishables. Okay. All ambient, all non-perishables for that exact reason. Right? So longer yeah. shelf life, get less less yeah, wastage yeah. that comes of it. So all ambient foods is, okay. is what we do. So just yeah. again on that on that sort of yeah. mistake that you sort of touched on then, how would you, if you were to do that again, how would you avoid that? Let's say someone else is out there listening to this, thinking of doing setting up a, a business similar to this. How would you actually go about avoiding that mistake and not purchasing too much of the wrong stock in a way? Spending more time looking at models and other people in the space if even better speaking to someone that's in that space um, that's done something similar i would say is probably the, the the best way to go about you know we're we're quite quick josh and i to kind of build and execute and, and do things and we still probably would have done that if i went back i still would have started and done it mm. um but i think yeah in hindsight now the first thing i would have done is really got someone that kind of is either built in the space, done something similar, and just pick their brain about it. Because, you know, not to take everyone's words as like advice the whole time, but when it's someone that's quite domain specific yeah, yeah, to yeah. you, they, they yeah. definitely know the little the pitfalls. Yeah. So that would have been the, the first thing I would have done. Um, yeah, and, and then looked at, looked at other models, other models that have kind of set up in the space in similar space. So spend a lot of time listening to podcasts of similar businesses that might be in the US or wherever they are, try and find their founding mm. stories and kind of see if you can get a gist of roughly how they established that before kind of running into it and, and, and making those mistakes. But mm. fortunately for us, it wasn't too costly. I think we would have clocked if it was like more than, I think it was about 4,000 we put into okay. stock. Right. But if it was like 10,000 or 15,000, yeah. I think we would have been like, this is probably a bit of a big yeah. upfront <laughs> yeah, investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So once you've got all the stock, is it literally a case of you build a website and then you're just going to people saying, hey, do you want to pay a monthly subscription to be able to buy our products? Because I feel like that's, that must be a hard thing to, to sell from the beginning. So... In this day and age, it's even easier, right? So you don't even have to build a website. You just put a Shopify up. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we had a, a Shopify website, um, uploaded all the products in there with good descriptions, etc. We then thought exactly as you, as you thought. We had the store, we had the stock. It was like, how are we going to get in front of customers? Um, what we soon realized, which still to this day is it kind of proves true, is that a lot of people shop online for those products because they're quite hard to find in conventional retail anyway which therefore means that Google Shopping is quite a good channel to actually acquire customers through. 
the hard mm. chance of Google Shopping is so we we throw up some Google Shopping ads, um, and you know if you've got buy owner coconut milk or you've got hunter and gather collagen peptides that people are googling anyway you're going to kind of drive traffic to the store the hard part then was the membership so we had a lot of people coming we had we had a 30 day free trial at the start yeah. a lot of people coming through placing those first orders then it was a case of how do we articulate that that membership is going to come out after 30 days and this is exactly what it's for right. um so that was kind of difficult at the start but you know i think when you're starting any business you tend to get some very passionate customers at first and i think even if they weren't at that moment in time had the same shopping habit that we'd want them to or the shopping intention, which was like a big order there and then, they might have come for just one product. They understood what we were doing in the space. Mm. So they tended to come back after 30 days. So we, we kind of won a few people back that way. Okay. Um, and then we invested in, in improving the flow, yeah. which was the main thing, improving that membership flow, right? Of articulating where that, where that comes in. So that was how it started that. And how did you actually build the relationship with those first few customers that you had? So yeah, they came through on Shopify. Shopify is great, obviously, for tagging most journeys. You get obviously the customer details. We made sure. I don't know whether that you were allowed to do this or not. We we kind of told a little bit of a, a lie at the start in the sense that we said we need your phone number in case there's any order issues. Um, the main premise of that was that we I could just call every single person that ordered and just be like, tell me who you are, tell me more about you, you know, okay. what you're buying yeah. and stuff. So that was kind of how we established it. And I think you know the first to this day probably the first twenty members of Well Easy like I still have on WhatsApp. So I still okay. message them. Wow. So cool. very, yeah. That's very, cool. So we were very close at the start. And I think when, when you have a membership, that's someone that takes out the membership and actually understands what it, what it does and, and what the value of that is. It is a close relationship anyway. Um, so they do feel connected because it's like a buying club, right? It's that sort of mentality. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, to, to some extent, we're trying to build an uprising in the food space, the health food space. So when people understood that, they were quite open to what we were doing. Um, and again, I think another point we'll, we'll come on to, you know, we did spend a lot of time thinking, are we solving a core problem for customers? And I think when you solve that for a customer, they're far more likely to build a relationship with you anyway because they're just so grateful for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely how we felt in the early days. You made a really interesting point there when you said, uh, and I, it's something I've never considered before, which is that all of the energy drink options that you saw were like quite hyper-masculine. And it's not something probably as a guy that I would think about, but then, then I would think about it, it's like monster, relentless. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is true. super. Right. So that's it is. I yeah, would yeah. never have thought of that. It it's it's not just, I think, super hyper-masculine, but it also, they're just copies of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You know, they provide the same kind of energy. So when we think about the energy category, there are sort of three waves. The first wave was Monster Red Bull, focused yeah. on providing one thing at whatever cost, which was energy. The second wave is the likes of Tenzing and, and Virtue. Tenzing, I believe you've had on, yeah, yeah, on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that provides the same kind of energy, but using natural ingredients. And I think consumers today just take natural ingredients as a given. So we've innovated on the type of energy, which kind of Marissa alluded to, which is longer lasting, jitter-free, crash-free, anxiety-free. Mm. And if you think about it, we also thought about what what does it mean to have a Red Bull out on your desk at work? You had a big night and you're hungover and you mm. need kind of the caffeine to help get you through mm. the day. It's not necessarily something you'd be proud to hold. We wanted to create something that you would feel comfortable having at work and actually recommend to your colleagues um, to help you stay productive, focused mm. and energized throughout the day. Sure. And it doesn't, it doesn't indicate a hangover, basically. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think exactly. this is. Uh, I think this may be a perfect time. It to, is to open to it. To, to <laughs> We're kind enough to bring uh, bring their product down. I like well, the can. Thank yeah, you. I really like the. I really like the design. <laughs> Where like did the name nice. Perfect Head come from? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Uh, great question. This was a really fun exercise. Okay. When we thought about brands that we admired, they all had human names in them, and it made sense to us because people are more likely to relate to 
another person. Thank you. That really is delicious. I've got pineapple yeah. using. I've got pineapple too. Sorry to interrupt you, but that, that is, that is delicious. <laughs> there was some also nice ASMR in there as well. When you were <laughs> right in front of the camera. There you go. Ooh, Crisp. That is lovely. It's really tasty. Thank you. That's so nice. Lovely. Yeah, that's really it. like that. <laughs> that's actually <laughs> really, really good. Like Ooh. Um, sorry, you were saying. So. And it's not too. Sorry, it's not too like overpoweringly sweet. Well, there's no added sugar, so it's right. literally water, fruit, and matcha. Super simple. Wow. No, and it's got the same amount of caffeine as, okay, one cup of coffee. And a Red Bull. And so we've Red standardized Bull. Okay. it for Red Bull. We wanted people to have that frame of reference. Sure. So to know that they're getting the same amount of caffeine, but a different type of energy. You're working at Red Bull. You have the idea. How does the idea come about? Um, and then what makes you think about actually pursuing it? Um, yeah, so I was like, also, I think I kind of, I left Red Bull and I, I'd been there for eight years and I've always, you know, to be honest, great colleagues and a great brand. But I kind of disenchanted with the product a bit. And, uh, you know, so I thought, okay. So I left and I thought, I, I actually, it wasn't like a clear cut, I'm going to start my own business. And then there was a bit like, should I work for another company? Should I start my own consultancy, whatever? Mm -hmm. But actually quite clearly and soon I found out, no, this is what I want to do. And it, you know, it, it came back. So the whole, the very beginning concept was, and it still is, you know, energy that's plant-based, low calorie and sustainable. You know, yeah. let's go find if that's possible. How would that look? How would that taste? Mm. Um, and that, that was the beginning. So what's the very first step? So you have the idea, because I think for anyone that might think about having a product-based business, I think the hardest question is, the hardest question is probably capital. But second to that, the hardest question is, I don't even know where to start. I mean, yeah. if I was to start, a, you know, a, a Coke-based drink, I would have no idea how to go about doing that. So no. how did you know what to do and where to go? Um, so there was a two-step approach. Uh, sounds really calculated now, but that was like, <laughs> just like the thing to... Um, yeah. So first of all, obviously, it's like I had a job that brought money in, Yeah. Uh, and then I didn't. So it was like, okay, so my wife and I had small children at the time living in London, not the cheapest place to live. Mm -hmm. So it was like, okay... For, I made a whole, and so I said to my wife, I said, like, I want to do this. And she was like, I don't think so in the in first instance. And I said, like, give me a month. And I like I built the business plan a bit. Um, and also, I also looked at our financial situation. <clears throat> I said, okay, what are all the things that we have to stop doing? We had to, we had to move to a smaller house, all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, And then I remember presenting to her and she and I remember her words really well. She was like, "This could work." That was a mm. and she's also actually kind of in the marketing business space. Right. So yeah, getting yeah. her uh, validation was the first kind of little sure. important moment. Yeah. And then, but we did have to move house, all that stuff. So uh, big and commitment then, then from day one. It was, yeah, 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 exactly. And like we had to give up our gym membership, and yeah. then we had to really literally like see mm. what's the money coming in. What's the, and, and assuming I wouldn't get any salary for like two three years. In terms of uh, the the materials, where are you storing them? The ingredients, like so, for example, the thousand kilos of, of ginger. Sorry, yeah, it's not no. in your it's not in your flat. No, it's <laughs> not. It's not in my flat. So one of the one of the best decisions that I made was to do a, a trial production run. So I imported that first 1,000 kilograms of ginger and it went straight into cold storage. And I took a very small quantity, I think it was about 40 kilograms, and used it to make my first kind of trial batch with the juicer in the factory, making the drinks the way that they would be made at scale. Because up to then I had, I didn't have any intermediary. I think lots of people will do a bit of recipe stuff, be like, oh, that tastes quite good, and then take it over to a flavor developer who will basically say, okay, you need this acidity regulator and this also in your drinks to kind of control consistency and emulsifiers and all this stuff. 
for me, I was basically like, there is no reason why I can't go from fresh juice in my kitchen to creating a fresh juice drink and let's just give it a go. But uh, luckily for me, I did decide to do this trial production with the guys in it threw up a couple of really big problems. Um, notably that ginger, when you juice it, produces loads of this starch, which acts like a non-Newtonian fluid. So kind of like custard where you put pressure on it and it turns into a solid uh, cornstarch, sorry, not custard. Um, you put pressure on it and it turns into a real kind of solid, like you grip it and it's almost like a feta cheese consistency. Mm. And then you relax your hand and it runs through like a liquid. It's crazy. It's okay, actually really cool to see. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately it does block a lot of pipes and that creates a really inconsistent product if you're not careful. Um, and certainly in our first batch of drinks, even knowing this after our trial production, we had lots of variability in what was in our cans. And, um, and with the factory, sorry, with the factory, yeah. how do you go about finding a factory? Oh yeah, that that's another good question. That came from my uh, two weeks of phone calls right at the beginning. So uh, my my mentee in my last job, his friend's girlfriend's brother? No something like that so like, your mentees no my mentees my mentees my mentees sister's sister's friend maybe it was only twice removed but it was right. definitely pretty obscure and this kind of i think this shows when you do something kind of interesting people are your, your network does actually go quite far which is fun but anyway he was um his name is james and i spoke to him really early on and he and his brother have a hard seltzer business called arrowtown and they were about six months ahead of me and they'd found these fantastic guys down in Devon who were a really nice small entrepreneurial team. And basically I just I just chatted to them. I remember a really big deal for me at the beginning was, will these guys take my juicer and deal with this process? And we didn't know that stuff would block pipes at the time. If I if I told him, uh, if I told the managing director, Sean, at the time, he probably wouldn't have worked with me. But I didn't know, luckily, so I didn't tell him. Ignorance um, is bliss. Yeah, ignorance is bliss. And then uh then they were like yeah cool let's let's get it done and because they were willing to work with me and thought that the idea of producing a fresh fresh juice product sounded cool and i'd taken them a couple of my kitchen recipes for them to try they're like yeah we'll we'll give this a go but i had um to return to like the problems the there was an inconsistency issue but the bigger one was that the drink wasn't safe so when you produce uh from uh fresh ingredients you usually have quite a lot of stuff microbiology yeast whatever it may be um in your uh, in your juice that you wouldn't normally get if you use extracts or something that's been pre-filtered or pre-pasteurized which is where most of the flavors in in canned drinks come from they'll come from something that has been treated in some way to make it a bit more sterile so for us we were um pack packaging up our our juice so our ginger and lime juice and then uh, steeping our uh, mint into our water um, and adding our maple syrup putting it in a can pasteurizing it in our trial at uh, an industry standard temperature which is 75 degrees for 10 minutes pretty sure that it, everything would be fine and it actually wasn't fine at all and um i use the phrase teeming with life uh, to describe what was in the cans which is um technically accurate <laughs> i would say not not technically accurate but it definitely there was there was enough stuff living in there to make the product unsellable over any kind of significant period of time and um that was incredibly concerning for me because i had used my 40 kilograms of ginger for um for my test 
test run, but I still had 960 kilograms mm. sitting in cold storage that would eventually go off. It wouldn't last forever. That was, so that was something I wanted to actually ask as well, because you mentioned earlier one of the mistakes you made was that you didn't necessarily figure out product market fit before you sort of jumped in and, and went with it. Yeah. So if you were to go back and do that again, yeah. how would you do it differently? There wasn't product market fit in the sense that I had kind of orders already and I hadn't done Kickstarter or anything like that. The, the kind of ways that people would typically gauge demand for a product and actually will people pay. But I'd done loads and loads of trials with friends of mine. We were coming out of lockdown, I think in early 2020. And I was cycling loads of batches of ginger beer around London. And I got maybe an N of uh, probably over a hundred in terms of tastings. Um, people, uh, me basically putting the drinks in front of people and asking them what they thought of it. And I was staring them in, in the eyes as I am doing to you guys. Uh, when you were trying the drinks and the feedback would have inevitably been very biased but i, I didn't... did notice that by the way i noticed when i was drinking it your eyes were like dead on me oh god <laughs> like no no no, no. Oh, not badly, but that's a good thing i would have done the same thing you're just looking for every reaction like are they being genuine do they actually like it are they yeah. saying that because you're on camera like i get that um but it 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 graduated from that to um i i got a, a market store license probably the one of the best decisions i think i've ever made over the business lifetime uh, was right I think it was week two I kicked off my process with Islington Council to get a, a pitch a market's trading pitch and that's actually to this day we do it on a Sunday in Camden Passage we have a market store there and that allowed me to do broader product testing I initially wanted to do a kind of innocent smoothie style love it hate it situation and I did um, but because the feedback was good enough and I had lots of different batches on my uh, table that I'd sort of tweaked in various ways so people were trying them and telling me what they liked and didn't like I think that gave me the confidence to make stuff even though I didn't necessarily know at that point how I was going to sell it where I was going to sell it I knew I was going to launch a website and I knew I had the store but I didn't have any retail traction at all so I guess my my comment at the beginning was it was more that I didn't know for certain that it would sell I didn't have any contracts and what I did was pretty risky and potentially quite foolhardy to go and make a product but it was off the back of lots of testing and lots of feedback so I was diligent in the sense that I didn't just kind of chill in my kitchen and make lots of recipes and think oh god that tastes tastes nice I bet people are gonna love this and then and then give it a give it a whirl it was much more the case that um, I was quite keen to fine-tune it and that's why I made it to 38 recipes and um, in the market stall days what kind of numbers were you doing in terms of uh, sales per day, uh, I guess maybe I was selling ginger beer at that point by the cup, and I still I still do the market stall as I say. But right at the beginning, ginger beer by the cup, I guess maybe like a hundred, hundred and fifty pounds of revenue. But if you um, if you go about the lengthy process with your local council to get a street trading pitch, and lots of them are unavail lots of them are unavailable because they're very popular, you can get a, an unbelievably good rate. So we. If we show up every single Sunday in a month, we end up paying about £21.75 for a whole Sunday of trading in one of Islington's busy, busiest wow. streets, yeah. okay. which is unreal. That's when crazy. you when you think about the amount of money it takes to basically set up at any event yeah, yeah. where you'd have, I, I know you could see it as a marketing opportunity too, but for most people, it's just like selling or uh, getting the brand out there. We get to stand there in, a, in an unbelievable place for very little money, so... Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd highly recommend um, giving your giving your local council a bell if you're interested in starting a food and drink business. Going back to the very beginning, uh, in terms of actually getting it off the ground logistically, 
how does delivery work? Because this is the bit that I'm always fascinated by. Because if I think about the idea of, well, I mean, for example, the idea that you had, I think, well, someone makes an order in Dunkirk. Mm. Is that a case of, you know, for, for seven bags of nuts? Is it a case of you literally driving there yourself or finding, you know, how does how does the logistical side of it work when you have when you don't have economy of scale? Yeah, so that's, again, that's where it gets hard, right? And that's where it's, it's not it's not the easiest margin to play with when you're shopping online uh, or when you're kind of fulfilling online. But no, it's kind of quite simple in the sense that order comes through, usually we'll have stock of everything that, that, that is in that order. You pack it all together in, in one order and we use the conventional systems, right? So the UK being quite a smaller nation and quite good with delivery, to be fair, they, they have cracked, you know, the big supermarkets here have cracked frozen delivery. They've done quite well with deliveries. Mm. So we use Yodel as a courier. We've been through all of them. We've been through DHL. We've been through DPD and tried mm. all of them. But at the very start, you know, to, to come back to, to sort of how we started, it was just that order would come. We would go onto UPS. I would type in on UPS person's address um, and batch print all these labels at the end of the day. I think we used Parcel to Go was like the aggregator. Okay. And that would show you the cheapest I've options. Used Parcel to go. Yeah, I, used, so I used to sell stuff on eBay and I used Parcel to Go all the time. Exactly that. Yeah. So just it would show you all the options, right? And then you just kind of plug it in. At that point, you don't even think what unit economics are. I'm not even thinking, I'm like, I wasn't even thinking that at the time. Um, and you just send it out, it goes usually next day. Um, you pay for kind of that sort of service and usually get to the customer. But we had a very big issue at the start is that we sold a lot of plant-based milks. That was kind of a bestseller for us. We were literally like praying every time a plant-based milk order went out because they would just get damaged mm. every single time. Oh, really? So okay. you take it to UPS because so, someone would order like 10 yeah, milks yeah. in one, right? So you take it there and I'd be like, fingers crossed. I'd be like, let's just hear that you got there the next day. That must be and, so frustrating because yeah. it's completely out of your control that as well. The worst and yet, thing. The customer will blame you for it as opposed to the delivery driver. That's that's tough. Massively. And you're just shoving, you know, paper towels, <laughs> yeah. anything you can to yeah, try, yeah. And, like, try and protect it. You, but yeah, we had to cut it. We had to cut plant-based milks at the start because right. it just, it was causing too many issues with delivery. You mentioned obviously at that level, you know, because of just getting the product out, you weren't really thinking about unit economics or anything like that. Mm. Is there an argument, because we've been talking about this recently, is there an argument that at the, at the early stages of a business, you almost can make the choice to try to forfeit profitability if you can, just to try to get the word out as much as possible, just to get as many orders through. Yeah, I think so, hundred percent. Kind of the yeah. model, I guess, in a way. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Again, it depends on the model. If you're if you're tech, for example, like of course that's, that's going to be the case yeah. because you're not going to make revenue for a long, long time. So you're going to be paying salaries or trying to do things. So you're going to be burning money. So that's that's why their model exists in the way it does. I definitely think in a business like us, um, a more experienced or seasoned entrepreneur or people in this space you could have definitely made a financial model at the start and kind of roughly projected where things were going to go and and done that in advance and kind of roughly know that if you get to x amount of orders you might get this sort of margin and and plan that out but again you know i think would we have done it differently maybe i'd have spent a bit more time on the financial model but i think you have to just get going to kind of get started mm. and yeah you probably are going to lose money even at the start you know anyone else that's done a business in this space will lose money at the start and, and that's why you kind of raise the money is to kind of lose it to figure it out and, and kind yeah. of learn from there so yeah. fortunately we're in a, a much better position now yeah. um still not per se like profitable but again not not far off did you have a business plan when you started i'm curious no business plan actually we had a like a well i laugh now it probably it is a business plan in some extent that that's what business plans used to be yeah. <laughs> yeah no it's not it's actually the opposite <laughs> no it's actually the opposite so we had a it was a university competition so we made a business oh, okay. plan so we had like a eight page document right but i'm laughing more because you don't even use those really today like especially raising investment right all you need is a pitch deck and a financial yeah, yeah. model and some other stuff to go but you don't really need like a an eight page document so we did have a business plan not that any of it was true and any of it was yeah, yeah. probably accurate in terms of financials but yeah we did um and but I didn't know at that time about pitch decks and raising money or anything like that. That was all kind of brand new, and that had to be learned as you went. When did you know that you were ready 
to move into your second location because that's a big step because a lot of people have a shop mm. or a restaurant you know but to become a brand yeah that's a whole other whole other thing i think you need to decide if you want to have a small uh family run or singly run business that will support yourself and you know that you'll make decent money from and keep it simple less headache or if you want to take it to uh, like a brand level and you know which will come with a lot more stress but obviously a lot more rewards as mm. well i think you need to decide that with any business you know because a lot of people are happy with just a single shop um and that's enough um, mm. both financially and you know personally um i think the fact that i would have probably at least for a longer period of time stayed with one shop for myself but the fact that um, a customer came in, a regular customer, um, and he said that he was in the middle of opening a Papa, I don't know if I can say it, a Papa John's. Mm. <laughs> um, he was in the middle of opening another pizza shop um, with his son. And he said, you know, would you consider franchising the business? So he said, yeah. I said, yes. Um, you know, why not? I was, I was quite um, happy and grateful that someone else had, you know, come up with the come forward to say that they you know like the business that much that they wanted to do one themselves so i happily said yes and he you know um, chucked the other pizza company that he was going to go with and within four months five months he'd opened his own store mm. in streatham in south london and he was doing better than me for people that don't understand with the <coughs> franchising model how does that actually work so he's using your name yeah. is there is it a profit split how does that business model work so i think it depends on the franchise. I mean, a lot of, I didn't really know too much about franchising at the time, but looking into it, there's a lot of franchises in various um, businesses from food to clothing to, you know, anything, um, which pretty much means that you give someone the blueprint and you give them the instructions, you give them the manuals, you give them the training to basically replicate what you've done, um, which brings me back to the first point that, it needs to be simple because mm. if you've got a massive, you know, high end Italian restaurant that makes all the food and, and does this and does that, it's going to be very hard for someone to replicate that. Mm. Um, so we basically gave him all the support. He basically copied the shop from A to Z. We gave him the training. We supplied the products to him and he just put the staff in and, and ran it. And you said he was more profitable than your branch. Yeah, he, he was more. more That's crazy. Did that make you feel a bit, did that make you feel the type of way? No, I was happy for him. I was actually because I learned a lot to, to to think that, you know, I could do more to push yeah. the business because obviously this guy's come along. He didn't start the business. He didn't create it. He's just following what we are telling him. But obviously he's doing, you know, something slightly different mm. to make it a lot more busy. What was uh, he doing to that, that made it more profitable? I think it was a mixture of the location that he chose to the staff that he had in there. Okay. Um, and I remember we had a very, very, very good Italian chef, like top, top chef, um, fantastic food, yeah. but he was bad with customers. Mm. Oh, he really? was rude to the point that he even brought pepper spray to work because he was worried that really? one of the, one of the wow. customers one of the was going to wait outside for him because he was what? so rude, you know, very rude. I couldn't believe it. And um, What, just randomly getting rude to customers? Yeah, just like oh, if they were if they were complaining about the way he was just you know oh, like, wow, oh okay. you go don't worry you go home <laughs> he was very <laughs> rude and I remember um, also with the recipe because he was together we made the recipe but mainly him because he's a chef we made the first ever recipe and um, 
when we opened another shop and when we had new staff coming in, I said, obviously you need to train mm. the new people and the other shop. And he would say, no, 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 this is my recipe. It's like my secret recipe. I said, well, we're mm. not going to grow very far if you don't, mm. you know, mm. share the recipe. But I think, um, thinking of back in Italy, when I, when I go back to visit family, that's kind of a normal thing that they would be very worried that, you know, you're going to get rid of them if, if they give away okay. their secrets because you wouldn't, you know. Mm. But anyway, and in, in the end, we just kept spying on him until we learned the recipe ourselves <laughs> okay and yeah, uh, yeah and in the end obviously we had to ask him to go because he yeah. was just causing way too many problems with um customers yeah um so yeah we trained the other guy he opened a shop and then that was after about five months and then after about 11 months we opened our second shop our third shop uh second owned one ourselves in croydon fort neath um and just just on that point then i mean how because one of the i suppose the biggest cons of a franchise is maintaining quality control. That's, I think, what stops a lot mm. of people from franchising their business. How have you addressed that? With difficulty. That's one of the main, main issues, even I was speaking with my with my um, friend on the way up here. That is the main issue with any franchise. What I'm assuming it is, I mean, it is with ours, but I can, I can only imagine with other franchises, it is that quality control. Because at the end of the day, these people are investing their money and, you know, possibly their life savings. So obviously... You would think they would want to make it work to the best of their ability and a lot of them do but there's always one or two people that will you know not care mm. as much as you well probably a lot of people don't care as much as you mm. because obviously it's your business but the the ones that will just let it slip below that you know point of caring mm. um that is one of the main issues quality control so the only thing you can really do is send mystery shoppers send chefs inspectors you know, check feedback, check reviews, um, which is what we do. But I think some people, you know, they will, you know, never kind of get it. 